wall message. Breaking news this hour on our top story tonight. We were just talking about student loan forgiveness. Well, we just learned minutes ago that a federal appeals court has temporarily blocked President Biden's debt relief program. The Eighth Circuit Court of of Appeals granted the request by officials from Republican-led states. A previous lawsuit against President Biden's program was dismissed by a lower court yesterday. But this one-page ruling, the one tonight, prohibits any student loan debt from being discharged until the court rules on the appeal. The court says that the Biden administration has until Monday to respond to tonight's ruling. Just a few days ago, the administration started taking applications to cancel as much as $20,000 in loans for borrowers.
um, it's kind of a process they go through. Um, they start by having an exam and usually some testing because we want to make sure that the treatment's working or that uh, the treatment is the right thing to do for that particular patient. So Jeff, when you, when you look at that, one of the things we've been talking about is how do we image our patients? So in some ways, I think you're, you're really focusing on the fact that how we look at the patient's eye before the injection may be just as important as how we give the injection. So how do your patients get imaged before injections in your office? Yeah, uh, so we, we check their vision to make sure that they're seeing what we expect them to see. And then they often go to get an OCT test, optical coherence tomography test, which is imaging that looks at the layers in the back of the eye in the retina so that we can see if they're responding to the treatment. And then take us, so you've gotten the patient image, they've, they've had their eye pressure checked and their vision checked. Some of us for each visit actually dilate our patient's eyes to, to look at the eyes. Some of my colleagues don't do that. But once you're to the point to giving the injection, can you take us through how, how that happens? Yeah, uh, so the patient's sitting in a chair, much like an exam chair. Um, we make sure they're comfortable. We numb the eyes, so of course they're comfortable, and clean the eye in a special way. Infections are very serious, so we don't want that. Um, the, uh, we hold them pretty still with an eyelid protector and have them look in the opposite direction. And then the eye injection itself is, is very quick. It's only one or two seconds. Um, I think the worst part about these eye injections is that the eye feels scratchy later that day. It feels like a piece of sand or something inside the eye. So um, what do you do with your patients after injection therapy to deal with that kind of surface discomfort that they have? Most patients go home and take it easy for the rest of the day. They could take some Tylenol or ibuprofen. Also, artificial tears are very helpful for rinsing off the surface of the eye and just the lubrication can help with the healing process. How do you explain to the patient for their first injection? Because I find that's the one my patients are most anxious about. I think once my patients have had their first injection, they're kind of like, is that it? And, and, and they're surprised in a way at, at how easy that was to do. Um, so do you have a team that gets your patients prepped or do you do that yourself? How does that happen in your office? Well, I'm usually in the room with the patient uh, for most of the time we're getting ready, but I, some staff is helping me um, uh, get the injection ready and get the cleaning supplies ready. Um, and then if I step out, they, they talk the patient through the process some more. So I do think it, it helps to hear uh, from multiple people how it's gonna go so then they don't feel like there's any surprise happening. I agree with you that the the fear of something coming is is probably worse than the actual one or two seconds of the of the injection. And the other thing, Jeff, I know we talk about sort of these best practices, and there's no standard single approach to an injection. Um, but for our patients, we use that lid speculum to stabilize the eye and pull the eyelids away. 
I find my patients really don't like that part of the procedure, but I've still felt pretty strict about doing that because the infection rates for us in the practice have actually been so low. So one of the things is interesting to me is that we all do this kind of a little bit differently. And for patients that just see you all the time or me all the time, it's easy. But when patients share injections with different retina specialists, um, sometimes they're surprised how different they are. Do you use a lid speculum to hold the lid open? And how do your patients feel about that? I do. And my patients feel a lot like your patients. That That's uh, some of the discomfort. And, you know, we try not to dilly-dally. We try to get the job done once the lid speculum is in so we can take it out and, and then the normal blink can return because that's a little bit funny to be trying to blink and, and not able to blink. I think that's true. And then interestingly for us, there are multiple anti-VEGF agents that we use um, and they're personalized to the patient and their condition but they're all really relatively the same injection experience. Unlike something like steroids where patients are injected with triamcinolone acetonide, because of the tumor practice that I have, we use a fair amount of intramitrial steroids. Do you do that also? I do. And like you say, that's a different set of symptoms because they get this flurry of floaters for a day or two, which you, uh, get to a much lesser degree with the anti-VEGF. Yeah, I, I've, I, we've had a couple of our patients literally feel like they have lost all the vision in the eye as the injection goes in. Um, and, and that's a little terrifying. So we do spend a little bit more time even with our intravitreal steroid patients to remind them um, and to tell them how different this may be. Um, we also inject other things in the eyes for infections from you know, anti antibiotics to antivirals, sometimes even antifungals. But I think that for most of us, the two classes of drugs, the anti-VEGFs and the steroids, are the ones we use most commonly. When you're looking at your patients, I, I know the Minnesotans are, are a tough group, um, but have you had patients that were refusing to have injections within your office because of how fearful they were? And if so, how did you manage that? I think there are some patients that um, are really scared, and unfortunately, that type of pa patient tends to disappear, and they don't come to their appointment because they're scared. Um, so I think if I'm sensing that a patient's really scared, I, I sometimes um, delay the treatment until the next time just so we can talk and build more of a relationship between the two of us, a little more trust. I think that helps a lot. Um, like you said, even for the most scared patient, it, it often turns out that they have their injection and they say, just like you said, that was it. Um, and when they have a good experience like that, they're much more willing to come back the next time. I've also found that, you know, we, we have patients as they're, as they're waiting to go into the injection room that have the opportunity to talk to each other. And I think that's very helpful from one patient's perspective to another. Sometimes they have a focus that you and I may miss a little bit um, in discussing what, what concerns us. The other thing that's been interesting is that, that 
almost never do we use any systemic medications to lower anxiety for the patients. But I've had maybe three patients in the last 10 years that really needed that to help them. And when we do that, we ask their medical doctor to get involved so that they can they can prescribe and monitor for that. Have you had to use any type of anti-anxiety meds for your patients? Very rarely, less than 1%. So I, I think that one of the things that's important to us is, is really to demystify these injections so that people so that our patients in particular and their family members understand better what we're doing and, and aren't so concerned. Um, and I think that we do so many of these um, that it makes this not routine in our office, but certainly something that moves rapidly. So do you have any um, pearls for, for your patients beyond what we've discussed in terms of what questions do they ask that we haven't touched on? Well, I think, you know, part of the fear comes from, is it going to hurt? And, and we've touched on that already. Um, some other fears uh, that are really on the top of their mind are, am I going to lose my vision from the disease? And I, I've been um, amazed by, by patients who I'm bringing back monthly, and I, I might say something like, boy, I bet you're getting tired of seeing me. And, and they, they almost always say, no, I am really glad to be here because the alternative is terrible. And, and it really helps to remember that, that these medications work. 90% of the time, they stop losing vision. Half of those patients actually improve. And this has such um, a positive effect on the patient's life that um, that fear of pain during the injection uh, decreases. So I have that same experience where, where I think the patients um, are initially apprehensive, but when they see the benefit, they're very willing to continue their injections. So to me, what I having practiced before there were anti-VEGF or anti um, um, targeted steroid injections, patients with wet macular degeneration and, and bad diabetic macular edema, they, they went blind and there was so little that we could do. So I'm like you, I spend a big part of this educating them to the advantages of the injection therapy. Um, and I think that makes a big difference when they can understand. And it also makes a big difference with, with the pandemic. Several of our patients have, have not been able to come back as they, as they have been scheduled. Um, and they're very, they're very focused at getting into the office as quickly as they can for the concern of losing vision. And patients that have been delayed from returning to have their injections often can lose vision. So the injection itself is part of this, but the imaging that we do before to know how to inject and then the scheduling after, I think are as critical. The other thing that patients ask routinely for me, um, Jeff, and maybe for you also is, am I going to need these injections for the rest of my life? And, and what do you say to that? Well, the, the short answer is yes, because this is a treatment and, and not a cure. I mean, we wish we had a cure, but um, the, it, it's actually a little more complicated than that because 
um, early in the disease, they typically need frequent injections, maybe every month. But as the disease, as the macular degeneration gets under better control, then maybe we can space out the visits to every two months or every three months or every four months. And so it becomes less of a burden. And so I, I think that I say that also, I, um, I give my patients the example of, of diabetes where you're controlling this disease with daily treatments. But if you don't stay on target with the treatments, there's the potential that you can have a major crisis. And I think also that the understanding that for most of our patients, we can extend the interval and personalize the treatment to how they're doing based on the imaging. I think that's, I think that's important. But at the beginning, I think I focus really on the fact that, that the key is to have enough injections given often enough to control the disease. One thing that I find kind of fun is when the patients are coming back in and they often see their OCT before I see it, and uh, they start to learn how to interpret those images, and they have a sense that their vision's better, but when they can see it on the, on the OCT screen, that's very exciting to the patient. Now, I found that's been huge. So we put the last image from the last visit on top and just below it, the same comparable image from this visit. And I'm like you, my patients, after a couple of visits, they have read their OCTs. They know they're better. They know they need to be injected. Um, they're fairly focused on sort of owning the, you know, their own care as they go through this. I'm always amazed by that. I think that's that, that opportunity also to see and visualize what we're seeing um, allows them to better understand why these treatments are as important as they are. So Jeff, what, what do you see for treatment options as, as we go forward? What do we do for patients that do not respond to an anti-VEGF or patients that um, may have other issues like bleeding that's significant? Do you, do you discuss other treatment options for your patients? Yes, for, for the vast majority, the, the injection is the number one best treatment, but there, there are other treatments. There, there are lasers and there is surgery. So, for example, if a patient has a big bleed, um, you need more than just medication. You have to do surgery and basically vacuum out the blood to, to uh, help, the, help the healing process. Um, but the, the, the same applies. Those are not cures either. Um, the, and there, there are um, complications and consequences to doing the more invasive procedures compared to an intravitreal injection. So I think that um, of all the treatments that we have for these patients, intravitreal injections are key. Um, we, we lived through a time when we did a, a fair amount of surgery on these patients um, but found that the, the, that the intravitreal injections may be as effective, if not more effective. And then what I found is in the patients that I have operated on, they have still needed to be injected. So some of my patients are like, let's go to the operating room so I don't have to ever have an injection. And what I tell them is, if it were only that easy, but in fact, what we see is that we go to the operating room and we still have to inject. So I think that that's, uh, that helps you to have a good discussion with your patients. 
And it's interesting for us, Jeff, I don't think we see as many of those big hemorrhages as we saw before. And I think that's because we're treating earlier with anti-VEGF and we're controlling the disease activity before the patient goes on to have a significant hemorrhage. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, I, I think when, um, when a treatment has fewer complications, you, you can reach the threshold for treatment earlier. And when, when it's an invasive treatment, maybe you drag your feet longer and then get into trouble and there's a big bleed. So we, I think what we've hoped to convey to our patients is that, that these injections, though they seem scary, are really not difficult for the patient or for us to perform. Um, but there are some significant side effects for this. Um, could you take us what, through what you think the three major side effects to intravitreal injections may be? There's some uh, common side effects. We already mentioned the irritation that, that you feel after the shot, uh, but also sometimes you can get a bleed on the side of the eye, on the white part of the eye, and that looks very red. Uh, it can look alarming, even though it's it's not serious. Um, but the serious complications we worry about are infection, inflammation, and retinal detachment. Thankfully, those are quite rare. But it, it's important to have contact information like an emergency phone number and a good understanding between the patient uh, and the clinic so they know exactly who to call when on that second or third day they're not feeling better or maybe getting worse, they, they definitely need to call and get some help. So we have a low threshold with the patients of having them call us if there's a concern. Um, fortunately, I think that the major complications that we worry about are, are incredibly small complications. So I usually tell our patients that our infection rate is about one per 15,000 injections in our office. And I think most people have a range between one in 3,000 and one in 20,000. So I tell my patients, you're more likely to be in a car accident driving home than you are to get an infection. But like lightning striking somewhere, it could happen. And we want you to be aware of that because if it does happen, we want you in the office as quickly as possible. The other thing, Jeff, that's kind of interesting is that we've gotten some advantages recently about using a reservoir that's surgically implanted that can let drug go on and on and on maybe for for months and even maybe years. Have, have you had any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exciting. Um, the possibility of having medication that lasts longer or a reservoir that can hold the medicine and release it slowly over time. Uh, that's going to be great. Now, um, putting a reservoir into the eye is probably uh, a more complicated procedure than putting a small injection into the eye. So we'll have to sort through um, uh, those details. I also think that when we start thinking about longer term treatments like cures, how are we going to get the the, the new treatment into the eye, it may end up being some variation of the intravitreal injection. Uh, I feel like intravitreal injection has been such a positive in our field 
that now we have this very high bar set with the intravitreal injection and all new treatments are going to be compared to that and they will also have a high bar. Yeah, I, I, I think things are, are so effective at this point with the medications that we inject that it makes it difficult for a new medication to come online. And it seems to me that for some of these newer therapies, we're really not looking to do better with closing the blood vessels that are abnormal. We're looking for more sustained um, maintenance of that closure so the patient has a lower treatment-related burden of care. So they don't have to come see us as much. They don't have to be injected as often. Um, I will tell you, I must get several times a day, why can't we give eye drops to treat these diseases? Why do we have to inject? Or why don't we use oral medications or systemic IV medications? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it would be nice to have something simple like an eye drop or a oral medication instead of intravitreal injection. But those have challenges too. Um, for example, with the eye drops, if it's a complex protein that's the medication, it may not get into the eye with a simple eye drop. You, you may have to literally put it inside the eye. Or with systemic medication like a pill or an intravenous medication, remember that medicine's going everywhere in the body. And if it's a powerful uh, drug or powerful medication, it could have some serious side effects elsewhere. Uh, with regard to the anti-VEGFs, some of those side effects are serious, like heart attack and stroke, and, and we don't want that. We want our powerful medication going directly to the part of the body that we're treating. Yeah, I, I think that's really a good comment. So we, we've tried some of the drop therapies, and they really have not yet been effective. And we have used some of the systemic treatments, but they've also been associated with more complications outside of the eye and much more complications overall. One of the things too that I do, Jeff, when I talk to these patients, to my patients, is I make sure to, to ask them to tell their medical doctor, but often they think that we're giving a systemic anti-VEGF and they're worried about systemic complications. We have to tell them that you know the volume is 100 microliters, like two drops from, a, from an eyedrop bottle, that's how I put it, and that we're really amazed that those medications have no significant effects beyond the eye. So that's, I think, reassuring for our patients and their you know, comprehensive physician or specialist. The other thing that you, you touched on are some of these newer advances. And I think one of the things all our patients are interested in is the concept of gene therapy. Um, and you've mentioned that gene therapy likely could end up being delivered by an intravitreal injection. Currently, the gene therapies available for pediatric retinal dystrophies require a surgical approach. But I think you and I are hoping that that won't be the way we have to deliver. Do you think that we're seeing the potential for a, a deliverable gene therapy in the short term, two to three years? Or do you think we're looking at a little longer time horizon? I think it's coming. It's coming soon um, for some diseases and probably later for other diseases. And I can think of two different broad categories for this. Um, one way you can do gene therapy is to target a gene and repair the gene. Another way to do 
gene therapy is to encode a medication and put it into the eye so you're um, you're up producing a specific medication that's going to help the disease. I think I think we're much closer to the latter, and it's going to be a while before we get to a cure for macular degeneration because there are so many different genes involved. But the, the, I think the comment you made is, is really interesting. So I like that description of actually having the eye essentially become its own factory to make the medication for us so that we don't have to keep injecting the patient. Their own eye is going to make the, the anti-VEGF for us. I think that's incredibly exciting for our patients and you know, may revolutionize care for us as we go forward. So Jeff, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Emerson, for joining us. Um, I think that you've done a superb job educating our, our patients and their families about what to expect for intravitreal injections. And I'm really hopeful that our patients may be a little less anxious by better understanding what we do. So I would like to remind our patients that they can go to visit us on YouTube, um, that we also have ASRS.org for patients, which is our website for patient information, and that they can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So Dr. Emerson from Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you.
sits behind the pupil and the iris. So the iris is the colored portion of the eye, and then behind it is the lens. Our talks today, this morning, will focus on the back of the eye, which is what Dr. Flaxall and I specialize in. So the back of the eye has the retina and the macula. This is the seeing tissue of the eye that communicates with your brain to make vision. So, how does the eye work? So, I think that most of us in this room still remember cameras with film, right? <laughs> so, certainly my, my son will never know what a camera with film is because he's only a year and a half old. Um, but, let's talk about how an eye functions like a camera. So basically, that cornea I talked about lets light in, and it goes to the lens, which focuses that light onto the back of the eye, the retina. And the retina, like I said, is the seeing tissue, or like the film of the eye. And it takes that light signal, and by way of the optic nerve, it sends it to the brain to make vision. Now, let's get more detailed. So this is a picture of the back of the eye in, um, in my view here, it is the, well in your view it's the right eye. So, because the optic nerve is on the right side. So this is a healthy, normal retina and macula. So I want you to imagine the retina like a circle and has a bullseye in the center. So that bullseye in that great big circle, that is the macula. The rest of the circle is the retina. And while the bullseye is really small, it's actually the most important part. Because the macula, that bullseye, is responsible for your central vision. So I want you to take both of your arms out and put your hands together like this. That is the vision that your macula gives you. Pretty important, right? It helps you recognize faces, it helps you read, it helps you do fine work, like needle threading, knitting, uh, very important. So the macula is precious. And unfortunately, that is exactly where macular degeneration affects the eye. So normal eye, and here's your macula. Now right in the very center of the macula is a structure called the fovea. The fovea is critically important because this is the part of your eye that gives you your crispest, sharpest vision. This is the part of the eye that gives you what you hear as 20-20 vision. So damage to this area is devastating. Now, how do we look at a cross-section of the macula? How many of you have heard of an OCT scan? So a few of you. So an OCT scan, it stands for optical coherence tomography, but here on we'll just call it OCT because that's too long of a name. And it is 
a simple yet highly sophisticated machine that uses light rays to take a very detailed photo in cross-section of the macula. Kind of like if you, let's say you have a cake. The top of the cake is this view. But if you were to slice the cake and look at the layers, that is a cross-section of the cake. And that is exactly what OCT does. It uses light rays, so no x-rays, no radiation, and it's really quick. No needle, no dye. It just takes a quick picture and we get this really nice detailed view of the macula. So here we have a nice normal macula that is functioning well to give you that 20-20 vision. And pay attention to that solid sort of white line. Can, can you appreciate where my arrow is? That's what I like to call the vision cells or photoreceptors in medical terms. These vision cells and their support network is what gets affected in macular degeneration, which makes it so the retina and the macula cannot function properly. So now that we know how the eye works and what an OCT is, let's talk about what AMD or age-related macular degeneration is. So there's two major kinds of macular degeneration, a dry and the wet kind. And we will talk about both of them in just a couple of minutes. But to review, the macula in the back of the eye, within the retina, that bullseye, the film of the eye, if that's affected, so that central vision will be affected. And this is just another sort of cartoon to depict that. So as you imagine that camera, your eye, getting light in, if the macula is disrupted, that light signal is just not going to make it. And so your brain just won't get those signals. It needs to make vision. So a little bit of background before we delve deeper into the two kinds of macular degeneration. It is the leading cause of irreversible central vision loss. And I specify central because in most cases, macular degeneration does not affect your peripheral or your side vision. So macular degeneration in most cases will never make one completely, quote, blind or lights out. You'll still have your side vision because your side retina is not affected in most cases. And most people have the dry kind of macular degeneration, about 90%, and about 10 or 15% have the wet kind. Unfortunately, despite those 90 and 10%, the leading cause within macular degeneration of vision loss is that wet kind. That is usually the culprit. So what does AMD do? By now, I think you've sort of figured out that it affects the central vision. And it's gradual in most cases. So like you can see in this series of photos, it starts off a little dim in the center, and then in advanced cases, it unfortunately can rob us of our precious front and center vision. So who gets macular degeneration? Probably not babies, right? 
So this is my son. He is uh, now a year and a half old. And uh, this was him at six months old last year. And uh, so he's not going to get macular degeneration because like the name implies, age-related macular degeneration. So unfortunately, however, his grandmas may. So he's not going to get it, but as we get older, his grandmas may get macular degeneration. So that's my mother-in-law and my mom. So what are the risk factors for macular degeneration? Like I already mentioned, in the name, age-related degeneration. As we get older with wear and tear, our tissues just don't work well like they used to unfortunately. So age is definitely a risk factor. And family history. So what does that mean? That means your genes. So not the kind you wear, because those you can, of course, exchange easily. But your genes that are passed down from your parents and grandparents, you unfortunately cannot change. In a major study, called the AREDS, or Age-Related Eye Disease Study, the researchers found that there were some genes that actually increased risk of macular degeneration by five to seven-fold. So genes is a, is a big part of it. And there's lots of genes other than those that we've already discovered. So it's a very complex disease. And smoking, of course, um, <laughs> is terrible for our bodies and, of course, for our eyes, too. Obesity, UVA and UVB light, even on cloudy days, wear your sunglasses with UV protection. So both UVA and UVB would be covered if the glasses are labeled UV 400 protection. And I think Dr. Boyer and others will talk more about this later. And some studies have suggested that cardiovascular disease, obesity, high blood pressure, that these can also affect the risk of macular degeneration. And lastly, diet. So that is something, fortunately, we can control. So you may not be able to control your genes, but you can control what you put in your body. And uh, things to eat would be spinach, green leafy vegetables. So spinach, kale, turnip greens, collards. Fortunately, we live in a city with no shortage of kale. And uh, there's However, recently, when we were worried about the snowpocalypse here in Portland, I do remember that kale flew off the shelves uh, in all grocery stores. So stock up on your kale and spinach, and hopefully you won't have any problem finding it. So I alluded to earlier that there's two kinds of macular degeneration. So let's first talk about the dry kind, the, the sort of more common one. So earlier I showed you a picture of a normal macula, a normal bullseye in that circle called the retina. And it was nice and orange. It didn't have these yellow deposits. These yellow deposits, they're called drusen. And drusen are yellow fatty protein deposits that build up underneath the retina. They're actually waste products that the retina just doesn't get rid of as well with wear and tear and aging. And over time, these drusen can cause toxic damage to the retina. Now, there are some kind of drusen that are actually harmless, and they're just they're like wrinkles in the retina. Uh, like we get wrinkles on our face, they're harmless. They don't look great, but Small, hard drusen in small numbers are just part of the aging process. It's when they get bigger and more numerous 
that's when it's more of a problem and macular degeneration is diagnosed. So the other form is the wet kind of macular degeneration and the hallmark of the wet kind is leakage of fluid and blood. And while dry macular degeneration can cause sort of a gradual worsening of your vision, wet macular usually if it strikes, it can be pretty immediate. So early treatment in wet macular is really important and we'll touch on it later. So let's go back to the dry kind. So this is a photo of a patient with dry macular degeneration, which is hallmark, whose hallmark is drusen, those deposits I talked about that sort of built underneath the retina. Kind of like if you imagine a carpet, a healthy carpet with all of its fibers and it's nice and vacuumed, that's a nice, normal, healthy macula. But as it starts to build up dirt and debris and, and garbage and no one's there to vacuum it up, that's the drusen. And the carpet doesn't like that. The macula does not like that. Now, what about if we did an OCT through that, through that uh, drusen area? That's what it looks like rather than being a nice straight line that I showed you earlier in the OCT, you can see these sort of bumps in the road. Can everyone appreciate those? There's, it's not nice and straight, there's bumps. Those are, as a cross-section view of the drusen. And those get in the way of normal processing of that light signal to make vision. Now, over time, these drusen can cause toxic damage and cause something called atrophy. In medicine, we use the word atrophy to describe loss of tissue. So you may have heard of muscle atrophy. If you don't use a muscle, you lose it. Or if you have a stroke, then that muscle might atrophy, so loss of tissue. So imagine that carpet again. So you have a carpet, it's, got, it's full of its fibers, over time, that debris, that sand, that waste product that builds up in the carpet is toxic and the fibers are lost. So this is a late stage dry macular degeneration. This is when it's, it's really dark right in the center, when you lose your central vision. And this is called geographic atrophy. Now you may be wondering what the OCT through this may look like. Basically, that line of vision cells and the support network is gone. And that's critically important to see. And that is why folks who have dry macular degeneration with GA or geographic atrophy cannot see well in the center. They have a dark spot in the center. They can't recognize faces. Reading is hard. They may turn their faces to read because they're trying to use that side retina to read, because that bullseye is gone. So, in summary, we have dry macular degeneration, which starts with drusen, that waste product in that carpet, and over time, it gets toxic to the retina, and those fibers are lost, and we can get atrophy. Not everyone, the good news is, that not everyone will progress to that GA. And we do have some treatments that can reduce the progression to GA, which I'll talk about later. 
Now let's talk about wet macular degeneration. So earlier I said that wet macular degeneration, the hallmark is fluid and or blood leakage. Where is it coming from? So underneath the retina, abnormal blood vessels grow. They shouldn't be there. They're abnormal and they're brittle and faulty and they grow in wet macular degeneration. Imagine a tree with roots and a sidewalk. In wet macular degeneration, the roots of that tree grow underneath the sidewalk and lift it up. And those roots leak fluid and blood. The sidewalk doesn't like it, doesn't function well. That's exactly what happens in wet macular. So you get roots or blood vessels that form and lift up the retina and bleed and leak fluid. And these vessels have a fancy name called choroidal neovascularization. Say that 10 times fast. The choroidal neovascularization, we'll call it CNV, because it's coming from a layer under the retina called the choroid, so CNV. And what drives all of this is something called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. It's a chemical that makes these blood vessels grow abnormally and makes them leak fluid and blood. So what we do for treatment is attack that VEGF and block it, and we'll talk about that later. So let's see what it looks like in cross-section. So that's blood, and in cross-section you can see here You've got that bump in the road, and on top of it, you have a dark area, which is fluid. And the retina does not like that. The retina wants to be a dry sponge. It doesn't like to be wet like electronics, because then they just don't function. They can't send the electricity signal to the brain to make vision if it's wet with blood or fluid. And here's an illustration of what I meant earlier with those roots of the tree growing underneath that sidewalk and lifting it up and abnormally damaging it so that it can't function. And here's another photo of wet macular degeneration. The photo of a color photo of the eye and then that cross section through it. And you can see that big bump in the fluid and the hemorrhage. And of course that's gonna get in the way of the normal processing of that camera making vision. And like I alluded to earlier, the wet macular is responsible for 90% of vision loss and macular degeneration. So I'm just gonna review with you the spectrum. Here's normal, normal back of the eye, that normal bullseye with a nice flat OCT. Then we get intermediate dry macular, which is drusen, and intermediate dry macular can become advanced dry macular with geographic atrophy, loss of the fibers of that carpet. And it can also go to the wet macular. All wet macular degeneration starts off as dry. So we define advanced or late AMD as having atrophy or GA or wet macular degeneration, those blood vessels growing and leaking fluid and blood.
and all of it affecting that precious central vision. But fortunately, we do have some treatments, which I'll talk about soon. So this is another photo of what you or your loved one may experience with late macular degeneration. That central area is, is gone, so recognizing faces is very hard. So how do I know I have AMD? So now that we know what it is, let's talk about how it's diagnosed. One thing that all of you can do at home is use an Amsler grid. How many of you have heard of the Amsler grid? Great, many of you have. So this is a simple but effective tool that you can use at home. And it's really important that you use this. And the reason is that when macular degeneration is in its early stages, many patients don't even know that they have it. And diagnosing it early is key. So this may pick up early changes. It's sensitive to pick up early changes that you may not be aware of. And we use it with one eye at a time and we look for dark spots or wavy lines, and that means that you may have something affecting your macula. It may not be macular degeneration, but it is a clue that there's something going on and that you should see your eye doctor. And just uh, please note that we'll have Amsler grids and macular degeneration pamphlets and booklets available uh, in the foyer for you to take home. So how do you use an Amsler grid? Put your readers on. Have your Amsler grid at reading distance and test one eye at a time. Really important to test one eye at a time. Because if you test both at a time, you might not know that one has a problem that the other eye is compensating for. So cover your eye, hold it at reading distance, and look at that center dot. And then in your side vision, see if you can see any dark spots or wavy lines or blurred areas. And I would do this every day if you can remember. So a normal Amsler grid will look like a normal grid, but if you have wet macular or dry macular degeneration, there might be an area of wiggly or wavy lines or a black spot. And that's something you want to tell your doctor about right away. What about testing in your doctor's office? So of course, dilation of the eyes and looking in the back of the eye at the macula and the, the rest of the retina and the optic nerve. But we can also do more sophisticated tests like an OCT, like I talked about. And we can also do something called a retinal angiogram. How many of you have had a retinal angiogram? All right. So a retinal angiogram goes beyond just taking a photo of the eye. So this is just a photo of the eye, and we see the havoc that wet macular has done to this patient's eye. And we know there's blood there, but where, where is it coming from? Remember how I talked about those, the roots of the tree, the abnormal vessels? With an angiogram, we can actually see those vessels. The, here's an example of one. So this is blood vessels growing, a network of them that shouldn't be there. And these are the vessels right in the macula that are leaking fluid and bleeding. And this is driven by that molecule I talked about, VEGF, and it is treated by something called anti-VEGF. It's a clever name, right? But I will talk about it more later. So the downside about a retinal angiogram is you gotta get a needle stick in your vein and dye injected 
And so some patients don't like that because the dye can cause a little bit of nausea or, you know, a rash. So some people don't like that. But overall, it's actually pretty safe and it's been around over 50 years and it does give us a lot of information. But we've come a long way and we've come up with technology to bypass this retinal angiogram. And I'll talk about it in a second. But I want you to appreciate the normal retina that doesn't have that network of vessels. But the abnormal retina with the wet macular has that network of roots growing, lifting that sidewalk up and causing it to not function. So what is that technology I talked about that bypasses an angiogram. Now, not all doctors' offices actually have this, so it's it's new. It's still in the works, but some doctors' offices at KCI we do have this technology. We in fact have an entire floor of researchers and equipment and um, very smart scientists and medical doctors working on the development of this and advancing it in the use of macular degeneration. It is called an OCT angiogram. So unlike retinal angiogram, an OCT angiography does not need an invasive injection in your, in your vein of dye, and it takes but a few seconds to take. So eventually we'll be seeing this more in doctor's offices, um, and it's a wonderful tool, non-invasively and very quickly, to, to see those abnormal roots, those vessels. So I want to emphasize that early detection is key. The earlier you diagnose any disease in medicine, really, the earlier you diagnose cancer, the earlier you diagnose pneumonia, the better your prognosis or the better you're, you're, you're going to do because the sooner your doctor can institute therapy. So use your Amsler grid at home. Take some home with you today. Uh, get your eyes dilated. Get your OCT. And your doctor may or may not do an angiogram, but certainly they'll start with at least dilating your eye and getting an OCT. So early detection, early treatment equals better prognosis, meaning better uh, overall outcome. So now let's talk about treatment. So we've talked about how the eye works. We've talked about how to diagnose macular degeneration and what it is and its two varieties. So let's talk about how to treat it. And this is the last part of my talk. So how many of you have heard of the ARIDS vitamins? Great. And how many of you are on them? Great. That's great to see. So the ARITS vitamins, they stand for Age-Related Eye Disease Study. It's this big ongoing study that showed that taking these vitamins can reduce the risk of late macular degeneration development. So that GA I talked about, when the carpet loses its fibers, or those roots forming in the wet macular. And what else can you do? So I talked about this earlier, but eat your vegetables. Your mom was right. Eat your vegetables. Your green leafy, kale, spinach, um, collard greens. Don't smoke. Protect your eyes from UV light and optimize your blood pressure and cholesterol control. So in talking about the ARIDS vitamins, what is in them. So there's vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin E, zinc, and copper. And then 
In the ARIDS-2 formulation, the most recent one, there's also lutein and zeaxanthin. So lutein and zeaxanthin are antioxidants, and they are concentrated in the macula and the retina in high amounts, and they protect the macula. They protect those precious vision cells from inflammation and oxidation and damage. Unfortunately, the body doesn't make them naturally. So you have to take them. So green leafy vegetables contain them. Your arids vitamins contain them. So these two uh, ingredients are really important. And together, the arids vitamins, all of these nutrients and vitamins together reduce the risk of progressing to that late stage that I talked about of macular degeneration. So there is something we can do in dry macular degeneration. And I do believe Dr. Flaxel will talk about some things that are in the pipeline um, to add to our arsenal for dry macular degeneration. So just to let you know, if you these pills are kind of big. A lot of my patients say, those are horse pills. I can't take them. So um, Arid's vitamins, fortunately, they do come in a chewable variety. So if you have trouble swallowing, um, you may want to ask your doctor about the chewable variety. So in summary, take your vitamins, eat your green leafy vegetables, don't smoke, wear your UVA glasses and control your blood pressure. And just a few more slides on wet macular and then Dr. Flaxel will take over. So to remind everybody, wet macular degeneration, fluid or hemorrhage in the retina or both, and it's driven by, does anyone remember the name? The molecule? Yeah, VEGF. So what do we do to block VEGF. We come up with medicines to inject in the eye, which sounds barbaric, but it's really, it's really not. How many get injections here? So I bet when you got your first injection, you kind of felt like this. So that's how a lot of my patients feel. But fortunately, they've been around since about 2005, 2006. We've done millions and millions of them, and they're safe. And sure, there's some risks I'll talk about, but by and large, they're very safe and very effective. And here is the KCI Institute's chairman, Dr. Andy Lauer. He's doing an eye injection, and this is generally how it's done. So let's go into more detail. They do work very well, so don't run and give your doctor a thumbs up when they do recommend this an injection. So the three main ones that we have are Avastin, Ilea, and Lucentis. And these are all anti-VEGF. They block VEGF, which is causing that leakage in fluid from those abnormal blood vessels growing underneath that retina like the sidewalk lifting up. So your doctor may start with Avastin, and if it, that doesn't work, they may go to ILEA or Lucentis. Now, of course, the benefit of treating with these injections is to help improve and maintain your vision. The risks are rare, fortunately. About a one in 2,000 or even less risk of infection. 
and inflammation. And then eye hemorrhage and retinal detachment are even rarer. So fortunately, these injections are very effective and very safe um, in the right hands like our great doctors at the KCI and VA. So anti-VEGF technique, your doctor will use some very effective numbing medicine uh, with lidocaine or prepare a cane to numb up the eye surface so that you do not feel the injection going in. And then to reduce the risk of infection, we use iodine or betadine to clean the bacteria off the surface of the eye. And then we put a lid holder in and do the injection in the white portion of the eye. So not through the pupil, not through the cornea, sort of to the side in the white portion of the eye where we've nicely anesthetized it with lidocaine. And then the injection goes in the eye and gets to work. So your doctor will send you home with some artificial tears to rinse out the eye at home because sometimes that betadine, even though we rinse it out, the iodine can be a little irritating in the eye. It can cause burning. So you just rinse out your eye if you need and no patch necessary. Recovery is usually quick. And then usually your doctor will see you back a month later to repeat the dilation, repeat the OCT, and see how you responded to the injection. So next, I'm going to have Dr. Flaxel, the director of the Macular Degeneration Center, give her talk on research. Thanks so much. and Paul Grootswagers. We all work at the Division of Human Nutrition and Health, Wageningen University and Research. We love to do exercise and sports. We like to talk about it. And the three of us learned a lot from doing scientific research on this topic. So you can imagine, we feel excited to share this with you. But Rineke, I know about your professional career before you started at the university. But for the ones who don't, can you introduce yourself a little bit more? Yes. Well, hi, I am Rineke Tering, and as Marco already said, I also love to do sports. I used to swim professionally, competing at European and World Championships and World Cups. This is a picture of me at the 200 meter freestyle at the European Championships. Nowadays, I'd like to do triathlon, just for fun. I can't sit still anyways. <laughs> Swimming professionally was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. One thing I learned is how much energy it costs to train that much and that good nutrition is essential. I also learned that it is easy to get lost in what people tell you about sports and nutrition. As I wanted to be sure about uh, that and to contribute to more critical knowledge regarding sports nutrition, I started doing a PhD at Wageningen University. It is interesting to see how many nutritional hypes are followed in sports, even without real scientific proof. I think that athletes and the team around the athletes should make good informed decisions when it comes to sports nutrition. I feel that this MOOC will help you to look critically at nutritional advices that are given to athletes, 
either by coaches, by sport nutrition producers, the news, anywhere. And Paul, sometimes during lunch break or after work, we cycle or we run together. But what inspires you for this MOOC? Oh, uh, thank you, Rineke. Uh, my name is Paul Grootswagers, and I'm passionate about cycling. I love the feeling of conquering a hill, and I even enjoy the med meditative struggle of the climb itself. Cycling and nutrition go hand in hand. If you don't think about your nutrition before, during, or after the cycling trip, you will be punished for that. I like to use my knowledge on nutrition to gain advantage over my cycling mates. Because if you understand how nutrition works, you can use it for your own benefit. To increase your performance, to feel better, or even to age healthier. Mm -hmm. The latter is the core of my research at the university. At one moment in all of our lives, we will feel that the years start to count and performing on a high level is not feasible anymore. I'm devoting my time into finding ways to maintain and improve physical performance during the process of aging, so that we can all live a long, happy, active and independent life. But Marco, what do you like to do and what made you decide to start this course? Yeah, thanks Paul. Uh, yeah, I started running as a kid. Uh, I was inspired by a Dutch famous marathon runner, Gerard Nijboer. He did win the silver medal at the Olympic Games in Moscow in 1980. Um, I'd like to do endurance sports, running, orienteering and cycling. Uh, just being out there, off the beaten track, and not necessarily to compete. But I also like to talk about sports. I love the stories. In this picture, you see me as a young guy on a very famous section of the Col d'Isoire in the French Alps. La Casse d'Isère. There are iconic pictures from Tour de France cyclists taken in that area, full of beautiful stories. Such stories of suffering and cyclists stepping down uh, always make me wonder what happened and how can we understand this. When I went to university, I started studying movement sciences and later on nutrition. In my professional career as a researcher, I not only want to know whether something does work, but also how it works. For me, there should always be a solid scientific explanation for a certain strategy. Also in sports and nutrition. But on the other hand, I know that many athletes do already practice or try nutritional strategies before we scientists do come to solid conclusions. That's why we put together this course that will teach you about the important role that nutrition plays in exercise and sports. We will not tell you exactly what to eat. Instead, we will learn how to make your own informed decisions. Rineke, what is your expertise and when do we see you during this course? Uh, my uh, research focuses on uh, micronutrients and uh, exercise stress markers in athletes. And that's why you will see me in module 5 about micronutrients uh, and ergogenic supplements. Okay, so module 5. Paul? Uh, my expertise is on nutrition and muscle quality during aging. You'll be surprised how much knowledge of exercise nutrition you can use to improve the way we age. And you will see me at the end of this course in module six. module 6. Now you know who we are, but we, what we do and why we love to be your teachers. But what about you? What makes you joining this course? And what sports do you like to do or to talk about? Wednesday, welcome back 
to the Lorden Arts channel. I'm John Lorden, and today we're doing a little bit of a searchlight update. This is a case that we covered many years ago. We also had an update episode on it back in 2019. The title of that was New Hope for Michelle Parker, and we're here again talking about another New Hope for this case. This is a case where you might remember we've been in contact with Michelle's father and stepmother. Um, I've had conversations with them and made them a promise that we're, we're not going to let go of this case until they have the answers that they're looking for. And thankfully, there's other people feeling that same way. This thing is not going away anytime soon, especially with this latest development. What is that? Let's take a look at it together. Over at mynews13.com, here's a picture of Michelle. An anonymous donor came forward with a $200,000 reward for continuing the search for Michelle Parker, an Orlando woman who has been missing since November 17, 2011. The 33-year-old was last seen after dropping off her twins with their father and her ex-fiance, Dale Smith, at his Orlando home. Parker had appeared with Smith on an episode of the People's Court on the day that she disappeared. The Orlando Police Department named Smith a prime suspect, but never charged him with a crime. If you don't remember, they were fighting over, I believe it was an engagement ring, if I recall correctly. Um, they were staying at a hotel somewhere, got into an argument. I think she threw the ring, and ultimately, in the People's Court episode, I believe the judge found them both partially responsible and just basically split the cost, I believe, uh, between both of them. But the day that episode aired, actually right around the time of it airing in that local area, all of a sudden she disappears. There is a sighting of her vehicle at one point, but they can't tell who's driving it. Um, her cell phone is found under a bridge. That's about the high level on the case. But now an anonymous donor really stepping up, trying to move things forward here. The family hopes the new reward money will bring forward information from someone who knows something about Parker's whereabouts or something that could lead to an arrest in the case. It's actually phrased in a pretty unique way. We'll, we'll get to that by the end of the episode. The donor requested that the money go through the family, not through Crimeline. Police said they'll take a tip any way they can get it. So also because of that condition, the contact information for this case, uh, just a little different. But we do have that in the description box down below if you have information on this case. We firmly believe someone out there does, and $200,000 sounds like a pretty big reason for someone to step up and do the right thing here. Over at WFTB.com, search for Michelle Parker continues with new tip. So the information comes out about the $200,000 reward, and all of a sudden a bunch of new tips get called in. Investigators are following up on one of the 20 tips that have been called in since a new reward was posted. Without revealing exactly what the tipster said, police believe one tip was credible enough to issue a search of the woods near Port St. John. The Parker family spent Saturday morning alongside investigators. Quote, I didn't even know this area existed, but now that I look at a map, it's possible, said Yvonne Stewart, Parker's mother. Um, I'm not finding information about why this location might be feasible or not, my suspicion is that this location could be perhaps on the way to a relative of the Smith family or possibly close to some property that the Smith family might own. Um, 
something like that would would be kind of my hunch on this but Central Florida search and rescue volunteers teamed up with police to scan the area with ATVs and seven canine dogs while the Winter Park JROTC scanned overhead with drones. Parker's sister said that while they're extremely appreciative, experiencing this is not easy. Quote, it's been 11 years, so it almost feels like it didn't happen, but it did. And we have to relive that. She also said that they're grateful that even 11 years later, people care about Parker. People do care about Michelle Parker, and not just about Michelle Parker, but about all of the family members, all of the friends, all the other lives that have been affected by this, her children. You don't know how strong you are until you have to be, her sister said. We told her we will never give up, so we won't. What was that interesting phrasing in terms of the new offer? $200,000 reward for tip leading to arrest or her location. So this isn't even necessarily tied specifically to finding the location of Michelle Parker. If someone out there has information that leads to an arrest of the person responsible, you know, law enforcement has been pretty open about who their big person of interest is in this case. That could be enough to get this reward as well. And it's really not often that I see things phrased like that. So I just wanted to point that out. I also want to say big thank you to the person that stepped up in this way to try to help this family. This is pretty amazing. I, I wish we would see this more in, in several other cases, but we also need to see this one solved. So if you have information on this case, I think it's time to call it in. Contact details that you need in the description box down below. If you don't have information on this case, it's still important that we keep the awareness up about this case. We need to keep talking about it we need for the person that has that information to hear that this talk is still going on. Maybe they don't know about this new reward. Maybe they will after you talk about it. Who knows? So let's do everything we can to try to help this family and find justice for Michelle and, and her friends, family, and children. Thank you so much for your time here today. Please join me again on Friday with a brand new episode of Brain Scratch right here on the Lord Narts channel.